If you passed by Lindy and Donna Backus on the streets of their South Philadelphia neighborhood, you probably wouldn't think twice about them. Nothing about the middle-aged white couple really stands out at first glance. More and more immigrants from Asia and Latin America are moving to South Philly each year, but many long-term residents can still trace their ancestry to the Italians, Irish, and Eastern Europeans who settled there more than a century ago. So if you rounded a corner to suddenly find Lindy and Donna speaking in flawless Indonesian, you'd realize they have quite the story to tell. You just have to be willing to ask them about it. The interesting thing is, is we rarely get asked that question. Yeah. Well, I mean, we walk around, we don't look like we've assimilated into anything. In our family, yeah, they might say, what's the food like? Or, you know. Do you like rice? You really do like rice? A lot of Americans, particularly white Americans, take for granted the feelings of comfort and belonging that come from being part of our communities. We just get America without really having to try. And even when we visit other places, our language, our culture are so ubiquitous that many of us expect our hosts to accommodate us instead of us adapting to them. When immigrants move here, there's an expectation that they'll become American. They'll learn English, they'll adopt our customs, they'll eat American food, whatever that means. And even then, some people will always assume people who look like me are foreigners, even if our families have been here for generations because we don't look like the typical white person they imagine when they think of Americans. And that's why we wanted to speak to Lindy and Donna, because they're a white couple who lived that experience by moving to Indonesia, where they were the perpetual foreigners. Even though they learned the language, raised their kids there, and spent 18 years steeped in the culture, they never really fit in. And then they moved back home to the U.S., only to find that that wasn't really home anymore either. Hello, I'm Alana Weitz. And I'm Lino Nicolau. And this is Culture Jumpers, stories about making the jump from one cultural context to another. Today on the show, The Belongers. So Lionel, tell us about the first time you met Lindy and Donna. What were they like and what inspired this episode? Yeah, so I was volunteering at a COVID vaccine clinic in South Philly run by an organization called CMAC. They're this nonprofit founded by Southeast Asian refugees, and they help other immigrants and refugees as they adjust to life in Philly and connect them to social services. So I'm there to help translate for Chinese-speaking clients who need help registering for the clinic. And I'm standing around with some of the other volunteers, and there's this older white couple and I asked them what language they're there to translate for. And when they answer with Indonesian, my mind was kind of blown. That's definitely not the answer I was expecting. So I started asking some questions, and I find out they'd lived in Indonesia for 18 years. And we couldn't really get into it at the clinic because customers started coming in, but I was really curious to hear their story. And thankfully, they were gracious enough to sit down with us for the show. Lindy and Donna grew up in the Midwest and met in their early 20s. Donna had studied art and graphic design, and Lindy had studied theology and hermeneutics. That's a branch of philosophy that interprets texts through the lenses of anthropology, linguistics, and sociology. As a military brat, Donna had moved around often, so she loved to travel. And when she found out Lindy had spent the summer after high school backpacking through Europe, she felt like she'd found a kindred spirit. But it wasn't just wanderlust that brought them together. 
Lindy and I both, from past experience, really had a desire to work with the poor. And a good portion of that comes from our religious faith. We're very progressive Anabaptist Mennonite Christians now. We weren't really in that tradition back then, but a very strong focus on helping the poor, caring for people, not focusing on a superior culture or superior language, the idea that diversity is lovely and beautiful because God created it that way, and that the poor are generally more put upon and pushed down. And so there was an internal kind of almost a personality drive from both of us. But it's also almost, it was a vocation. It was like a call. It's difficult to put that forward as the thing, but we would be lying to say it's not the case. In 1989, Lindy had an opportunity to travel to Indonesia for training and community development work, and Donna was on board to go with him. We also were very delighted to go to the largest Muslim country in the world and to get very involved in working with Muslims to understand how they were coming at things. That's the reason for a lot of the training and the anthropological training, the linguistic training, focusing on development and that kind of thing. And married to an artist you know, because it's an aesthetic journey, right? I mean, it's trying to understand the visions that, for me, God puts before us. And so Donna helped to open those sorts of things up. So they prepared to make the big move. But while they were both excited, their expectations may have been a little different going in. Did you know that you were going to be there for a long time? Or was it one of those things like, oh, two years and then extend? It was kind of more like that. But For me, it was sort of like, so we'll reassess after two years. Well, we probably came at this a bit differently. (laughs) Um, And I think that's legitimately how she dealt with it. So I was thinking certainly 10, 15 years right from the beginning. Whether or not we could do that was an open question, certainly, because you couldn't know that at the beginning. I'd had enough good anthropological and linguistic training to know and change agent training that it's there's no way you're going to get things done, like the kind of stuff we wanted to get done in two years. It was not lost on us. We were going to have to kind of slowly settle in. But, you know, the language learning and cultural learning was all part of becoming a belonger. And it took a long time because of the way we wanted to do it. We both had this idea that we needed to not just receive our mail there. We had to live there and we had to be neighbors. And we'd never be insiders, but we had to be belongers. We had to be the white people that young kids who had been born after we got there, always knew lived down in the corner, right? It's like we were the fixtures, you know, and and that did happen. When they first arrived, Lindy and Donna stayed in the regional capital of West Java near the University of Pajajaran, while Lindy took classes in language, culture, and economics. They stayed with a local family, which helped with their language and cultural immersion. It also meant they had a few friendly faces to turn to in their brand new country. When we first went in 1989, We actually lived with a family. We just moved in and rented a room from an elderly couple. And Lindy learned a lot about that sort of method of bonding, is what you'd call it. Bonding, immersion. Yeah. I mean, the idea is twofold. First of all, you know, they're going to be your teachers. They're going to teach you how to live there because they're the experts at that. But then the second thing is, and I, this one I think easily goes unnoticed, when you get to the place where you're really struggling to like the culture, because inevitably honeymoon wears off, you end up getting taken advantage of. But when we got to that place where we hit the wall and didn't like Indonesians unfairly, we had this family we loved who really took care of us. And so they got us through it. The couple provided some stability and support for Lindy and Donna, particularly when the culture shock was at its peak in those early years. One thing Donna hadn't been prepared for was how she would be treated as a woman. 
And it was hard being a woman there, to be honest with you. I mean, I felt more like a second-class citizen there than I did in America. It's a very patriarchal culture, and I was relegated to the home a lot. And I didn't think it would be quite like that, you know? (laughs) Their host family turned out to be a lifeline when things got really tough. I remember one particular time, this is after we'd moved in their own place, but we were still really close to them. The granddaughter and her fiance came over and they would help us with language learning and whatever. And I remember one time Donna came back from a public transportation vehicle and had felt really particularly accosted. And she frankly broke down in tears. And Donna doesn't cry a lot. I mean, you know, she's pretty tough. They saw her break down and they kind of wept with her. I was also feeling utterly vulnerable, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to be a good spouse or a partner to her and all that. And they didn't know what to do. And they understood our weakness. It really created a cohesion between all of us. I mean, our humanity came out really strongly. So even in a very weak, difficult time of disempowerment, there was a real deep connectedness, I think, that was born. And to this day, you know, we have strong affections for that family. But even with a support network, those early years were often overwhelming and humbling. The first two years, we were just exhausted all the time. (laughs) Well, it's kind of sensory overload, right? I mean, everything's coming at you. You know, white Americans, unless they've really been proactive, we're monolingual. So we don't really know how to learn a language very well. A lot of the world knows how to learn languages. about. We think you do it in classrooms with headsets, you know, but you don't. I mean, you use it kids show us how to do it. You make mistakes and you're humbly corrected. And, you know, for a three-year-old to be corrected about using a bad conjugation of a tense is fine. For a 32-year-old white male, you get really defensive, you know, and really prickly. It wasn't easy. But, you know, to be disempowered was kind of a part of learning how to empower others. And this was a huge plank in how we went about doing development, practice, and theory later, whenever we really started setting up our nonprofit. You know, this issue of humility, listening to others, not lording it over people, not stealing their agency and that kind of stuff. It wasn't hypothetical. It was born of our experience. As Lindy said, though, learning that lesson wasn't always easy. There were times when they had to remind themselves to have humility and to keep an open mind toward a way of life they weren't used to. I felt a lot of anger sometimes too, though. And I think I I would go for a long period of time having this attitude about something or just know I'm right, you know, feel like I'm right about it and they're wrong. And then I would realize, oh, you know what? It makes sense. I understand it now. Like sometimes like I remember I used to get so sick and tired of people asking for money all the time. They'd meet me and barely know me. They want to come in and they want to borrow money. And I just just irk me, you know, (laughs) years later, I began to realize this debt they want with me actually keeps us in a relationship. So it's like, I remember having a a helper who I gave her some money. She goes, I gave her a raise. And she goes, oh, you know what? I can start loaning this out. I'm like, why would you do that? You know, and she didn't really explain it. But then over time, I figured it out. It's like that ties you to that person because if they owe you money, they're going to be kind to you. And when you call on them for help, they're going to come help you because you have this bond, even though they may never pay you back or only pay you back a little. Over time, they started to make progress with the language and cultural adjustments. But Lindy realized he would need a lot more formal education to do the kind of development work he and Donna wanted to do. In 1992, he and Donna returned to Pennsylvania for a year, where Lindy earned a master's in economic development, and he would eventually go on to earn a PhD. 
With his master's coursework complete, Lindy and Donna returned to Indonesia in 1993 and bounced around to different areas while Lindy did internships in the field. And then, in 1994, Lindy and Donna got a new addition to the team. And then we came back, we adopted our daughter. Um, that's a whole story in and of itself. But we adopted our daughter uh, from Joplin, Missouri, which was almost miraculous that we could do that. We got her processed in two months to be fully ours and have a passport. Um, and then we moved back. And that's in 94 is when we moved into the slum. Um, yeah. In yeah. Who does that? Move into a slum with a newborn baby. Yeah, we had a two-month-old baby. <laughs> two months. Lindy and Donna once again tried to adjust to life in a new place this time with a brand new baby in tow. And parenthood brought a whole new set of struggles. When I had a child, that was really hard too, because I was constantly being criticized. So we're living in this slum area and everybody's watching us all the time. And the old lady, Ibu Haji is what we called her. She'd been on the Hajj, so you, you call them Mrs. Hajj, you know. Um, she was always telling me what I was doing wrong as a mother. I was already feeling pretty vulnerable. And so my self-image just plummeted because <laughs> the criticism was nonstop. Everything I did. But I found out and learned that that's just normal. That's their role, you know? And the younger women would say, just say you'll do it and don't. <laughs> Things like I had to actually bundle my daughter up like it was wintertime practically to walk out of the neighborhood to take the public transport. And then it's right before I'd get on public transport and I was clearly out of the neighborhood, I would have to take it all off of her, you know, because they thought she would be too cold, you know, but. She, You're in the tropics. Yeah, she was. <laughs> right, right, right. Isn't it like really warm over there? <laughs> very, very warm. Yeah, right off the uh, equator. It's really hot. Yeah. We all know how annoying unsolicited advice can be, but at least it was something to talk about. Once the chaos of being new parents calmed down, Donna realized she had another problem which would continue to plague her throughout her time in Indonesia. Honestly, the hardest thing, people would ask, oh, it must have been awful, you know, living without hot water or all these different things. I'm like, no, no, that all, all of that, I got used to all of the ants, the rats, all of that. I got used to it, you know, and, and learned how to deal with it. The hardest thing for me was actually periods of terrible boredom. <laughs> I will say for me, you know, especially as a woman at home with the kids, the boredom could get overwhelming and there were very few distractions. The neighbors would often talk about the same things all the time or not talk. You know, there's a lot of silence and just kind of sitting, a lot of sitting. <laughs> and part of it's reinforced by like that gender role totally. a little bit. Oh, completely. Right? Oh, I... Right. Yeah. There's very much an outside and inside. The outside is the man's domain. The inside, the domestic domain is the female domain. And, you know, you also have to decide, are you going to challenge that all the time, right? Because we're there trying to do value change in regard to development and empowerment, whatever. Who are we to come in and say that the men and women don't treat each other right? But sometimes they don't. Yeah. And, and I wasn't always treated right by some of the neighbor women because, you know, the some of the men, and it's a minority still, but of course, like Lindy said, they come out of the woodwork. Some of the men in the neighborhood were cheeky and they would say things and behave a certain way when I'd walk by. And I remember when I just got Dika, he was on my hip a lot. And I would be walking around and the men would say, hey, you want to adopt me? You know, that kind of stuff. And the women would hear it. And then there was a period of time when the women hated me, you know, oh, and it's no. just like I could never win. And it would be waves like that. Sometimes I don't, then... Then because I would get, 
resources for them or help them because we had a health unit, then I was a hero. You know, I was wonderful. I was a hero. And then I, then something else would happen. And then, oh, you know, so there's a real down and ugly side to having that kind of a super tight community. Constant exposure to illness was another fact of life for Lindy and Donna that they hadn't expected. When a bout of typhoid landed them both in the hospital, they felt they were at their breaking point. They started to have doubts that they could hack it. I mean, there was there were crisis times, definitely, when I thought, this is, I can't take it anymore, you know, especially just getting sick so much, you know, typhoid and it was cholera. <laughs> I just thought, I can't do this. And and we did live, I mean, we were not living like typical expatriates. We lived in a slum for four of those years, we're in a slum. You know, it was after, I guess, Lindy would been there about three years. That's when I got really, really sick. And uh, I was in the hospital and then, then Lindy got it too. It was typhoid. And then while I was in the hospital, I just kept thinking, I can't do this anymore. I got to go home. I just got to go home. And Lindy was good. He was like, okay. We resolved that if, if it was going to ruin uh, her health, it was going to ruin our relationship. We were going to give it up and go home, not as a failure, but, you know, we just, it wasn't us, right? But um, we got out of the hospital together and we walked back down into our slum and something almost like an epiphany happened. We just, you know, it all of a sudden looked bright and it looked sweet and nice. I know. And all the people, all the neighbors came out and they were all crowding around us, you know, wondering how we're doing. And they all came in the house and it was the same place. Yeah. It hadn't changed, but I mean, I think our perspective had changed. With this new shift in perspective, and with seeing how much the community cared about them, Lindy and Donna started to appreciate all the ways that they were starting to fit in. I started noticing how we were changing when we came back after two years, back to the States, and I realized we weren't the same people anymore. So that, to me, was the first sign. It kind of happened slowly, but you just start almost thinking in the language more, and you start forgetting English words, and then... You start feeling the language and feeling the communication yeah. as opposed to just, it's more than just stopping translating. It's like all of a sudden, you know how whenever somebody asks you about something in grammar and you can't really say why, maybe your English teacher would be able to. I often say that you know a language really well when you know what not to say at a funeral. It's what you know when to shut up. You know when to to nod the right way. You know when to to follow who knows what they're doing as an elder there or, or a deep level thing. And I think probably after our internship in Bali, where we were living there all alone by ourselves for quite a while, there weren't any Westerners we hung around with. And I think we got deeply embedded then. And then we went back and lived in that slum. I mean, even Indonesians who had a choice didn't want to live where we were living. So they didn't want to come visit. So like a lot of the foreigners didn't come there unless they wanted to come and see us kind of almost as a museum piece. Actually, it's, remember that weird incident, Lindy, whenever you got a call in the in the night oh, yeah. from the police yeah, yeah. and we're like, what's going on? I thought, what have I done? <laughs> what did I get? It was like two in the morning, got this call. And, you know, and the police were pretty predatory. 
we were working with the informal community. I'd done research with the informal community. They roughed them up all the time. So I didn't, I, I wasn't too happy with it, but I went because I mean, gosh, I kind of need to. I went down there and there, there was some West African guy there who only spoke English and they wanted me to translate for him. And I did. And I rode around in the cop car with him and they tried to figure out where he was from and they put him finally in a hotel. And it was a real kind of almost affectionate moment. I mean, I really felt trusted. That went away a few months later because they kind of went back to not being such easy people to deal with and whatever. But I did feel very internal. And then later when I did my PhD study down in another city, which was much more in the rural areas, when I would pedal my bike into my kind of research area and they'd let me in and we'd all sit clandestinely and listen to um, Voice of America and BBC Indonesia Radio to find out what the real news is because they didn't believe the national news that was being pumped through. And we'd have to turn it off and we heard people walking by the house. And, you know, there's four brown-skinned Sundanese guys who were pretty vulnerable in their own area letting me in to listen with them and drink their you know, kind of insipid weak tea and breathe in a half a lung of secondary cigarette smoke, you know, that I do every night. And I really felt honored by that. I mean, it was really significant. So um, there were a lot of little gifts like that, that we got from Indonesia. One of the biggest gifts was getting to see the country through the eyes of their kids. A few years after adopting their daughter, Aubrey, they adopted their son, Dika, from Indonesia. It's a great place to raise children. It is a great place yeah. to raise little children. They're very child-friendly. They love kids. And kids love it there. heck of a lot easier to raise kids in Indonesia than in the United States. Yeah, my kids were the window to the neighborhood. My daughter's uh, Indonesian name was Nur, Nur Baiti, which means radi- uh, radiance of our house. Yeah. Of our house, yeah. And so she, I was always known as Nur's mom and then later Dika's mom. And, you know, the children are really a focus. They always talk about children as the entertainment, you know. Probably the thing I miss the most is watching my children in Indonesia. That's the thing I loved the most. I loved how bicultural they were and how how beautiful that was. And And they were very happy. And the neighborhood loved them. I mean, loved them. And although they were an unconventional family, the kids didn't share their parents' worries about fitting in. So I'm wondering what the experience was like for your kids, you know, having a white daughter who's growing up culturally Indonesian and then having an Indonesian son growing up with a white family. Like, what was their experience? Nothing got hard until we came here. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think for them, our daughter, oh my gosh, she was so much more Indonesian than she ever was American. She hardly had any American friends the entire time she lived there. She was there until she was age 14. And they just, uh, they were so happy there. That was their world. Well, and they knew we liked it there too. That was a big deal. Like it wasn't something that we were gritting our teeth and having to live there. We liked it too. One time I asked my daughter when she was really little and, and she could already speak. She was an early speaker. I said, what color skin are you, honey? And she goes, black. <laughs> <laughs> I just laughed so hard. And Indonesians are not black. They're brown, but they call themselves black. So, you know, that's she was just saying mm-hmm. what everybody else would say about themselves. Yeah. And she didn't see herself as being any different. At least not most of the time. 
there was a couple years where a few of the girls in the neighborhood that she'd grown up with, they were kind of shunning her. This was when the economic crisis hit and a lot of our neighbors started wearing the head coverings because they were being told the reason why the, the country was so poor and everybody was suffering is because they weren't good Muslims. And so around that time, you know, things started heating up before that government fell. But she, um, I remember this little girl was kind of hanging from a tree and looking over the our wall. And um, my daughter was like, how come you're not playing with me? And she said, because you're Christian. We don't play with Christians. And I thought, I've never heard that ever. And I never felt that ever. And um, for maybe it was only a year. I don't know. It seemed like a long time. She didn't have a lot of friends. It was a bit, it was quite heartbreaking for her. But then it, you know, came back to normal again. But it was devastating for her the most, I think, to leave Indonesia because, um, you know, she'd been there for 14 years. And then my son, he was eight when we left. But he... You know, he was the typical little Indonesian neighborhood boy, um, hard to keep shoes on him, just chasing kites with all the boys and, you know. He was the kite runner. <laughs> yeah. And just, uh, you know, they both learned both languages, um, the Sundanese language. My daughter, she learned the three levels. You know, there's the very high level, middle and low, more crude level. She could speak them all. The neighbors said hers was perfect and she spoke Indonesian. And my son, I think he was speaking mostly Sundanese, because um, usually the littler kids speak mostly Sundanese and could understand and use some Indonesian. But by the time we left when he was eight, they were both fluent and it was really hard for them to come to America. Through their NGO, Lindy and Donna had also pulled together a work family of Indonesians and expatriates that blended their two worlds together. One of the greatest sources of pride, I think, for Donna and I is whenever we pulled together an expatriate team there working with about 50 to 60 different Indonesians spread over three islands. And we had like about 14 different cultures of the expatriates. So we had Singaporeans, we had Filipinos, we had New Zealanders, Australians, Dutch, Malaysians, Americans, Canadians, British, and we really loved each other. We had Christians and Muslims working together, the two largest religious factions, because there's really no secular people in Indonesia. Everybody is religious. So we said, we're going to have people working together and respecting each other, talking to each other about why we do stuff maybe once a month. And then we're going to help the poor as an act of worship from each of our religious perspectives. And that really worked. And so we had Christians and Muslims of all different varieties, just like here, they don't all get along with each other. Our people, we really worked hard to get along. We even had a group called the Ahmadiyya, a young woman who was one. The Ahmadis are generally vilified by all the Muslims. They're hated. Not in our group. Everybody liked her, loved her. I think that's the thing that makes me most proud is we, we had a little slice of heaven for a while there for about two or three years. Lindy and Donna had already seen how their development work created unique bonds between them and the local people. It gave them access to intimate spaces and conversations that other Westerners were barred from. But in 2004, things reached a whole new level. Because we spoke the language really well, we went up, for instance, a year after the tsunami to the kind of the western edge of Sumatra where all the people died. I'd been up there all year helping with stuff, but the whole family, Donna and our kids went up there and we stayed with the Nachanese family. In a little there. hut on stilts. <laughs> yeah. Late into the night, 
they would um, tell us stories about um, what they'd been experiencing. And a lot of people don't realize that there had been a 25-year civil war going on there up to that point, and the last two years was martial law. And so they had suffered a lot. So they would tell us stories about that. And because we spoke the language fluently, we just sat around and talked. And they let us in on things. I mean, we heard amazing things. And we saw incredible resilience and strength on the part of everybody there, especially the women, right? Because they'd say, you know, like uh, now the tsunamis hit and we've lost so much, but at least whenever our Jeep rolls up at two in the morning, we don't have to worry about what's going to happen because they'd get sexually accosted, whether it's by the rebels or by the government forces. It doesn't happen anymore, they said to us. So those were powerful times. I mean, you know, who gets let into that kind of stuff? You've got to earn your right to be there. And it was an incredible gift for them to allow us to do that. Indonesia faced a laundry list of historic events while Lindy and Donna were there, which made living there as foreigners even more complicated. We'll get into more of them later, but one of the most unforgettable events Lindy and Donna experienced came from Mother Nature. The 2004 Boxing Day Tsunami On the morning of December 26, a fault line ruptured in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Sumatra, Indonesia, that was longer than the entire state of California. Measuring between 9.1 and 9.3 magnitude, This earthquake was the third largest recorded since 1900. It triggered a massive tsunami shortly after. With waves reaching almost 100 feet tall in some places, it devastated nearby coastal communities in Indonesia, Thailand, Sri Lanka, and India. Over a dozen countries were severely affected, and ocean disturbances were recorded as far away as Alaska. Together, the earthquake and the tsunami made up the deadliest natural disaster ever. Aid quickly poured in from all over the world as the unimaginable scale of the destruction became clear. To this day, estimates vary, and the exact numbers will never be known. But over a quarter of a million people died. Over half of the deaths occurred in Indonesia alone. Tens of thousands more were listed as missing, and half a million were displaced. The hardest hit area was the Aceh region of Sumatra. Lindy and Donna were fortunate not to witness the event themselves, having been on the island of Java. But as development workers, they knew they had to be involved with the rebuilding. Knowing the Achenese communities would need extensive support to rebuild long after the crisis relief workers left, Lindy headed up there as soon as he could. Since you brought up the tsunami, did it hit hard where you guys were living? Mm-mm. No. Okay. It's on Sumatra, the northern tip of Sumatra, up near Thailand. That's why it also hit Thailand. We were holidaying over Christmas with another family, and we found out I was leading the development work of our organization for the entire country. And so we were trying to figure out what we should do. I knew right away that this was going to take relief. It's like the difference between having a general practitioner in your medical stuff or triage in your emergency room. I'm not a triage doctor, but eventually we got to where we knew we had to help them transition into development. We had to translate literally because a lot of the people coming in only spoke English or European languages or whatever. And the first time I went up there, um, I helicoptered in over the rainforest in a small little helicopter. It was kind of scary because there was no way to get roads in. And, you know, bodies were floating everywhere. I've never seen anything like it. I had a friend who told us, one of my New Zealand colleagues, he said, at this time, you don't ask to people, have you lost anybody? You ask how many. I mean, I knew one family that had lost eight of 10. I mean, it's just on and on and on. 
frankly, the development and relief, especially the relief organizations, there was like $9 billion that poured into Aceh in the first like six months. It utterly distorted the local economy, messed up a lot of people. The relief world didn't seem to care. I mean, they were good people, but you know, they're short-termers. They're going to come in, put the Band-Aid on and move to the next crisis, which there were. There was a like an earthquake in Pakistan not long after that or whatever. So they left. And so we had to figure out what to do with local people. And they wouldn't listen to us. They had the money. They had the power. We got kind of elbowed out after a while because we were small. So that was tough. But also Donna and I could go back now to northern Sumatra, to Aceh, and still run into friends there. And in fact, here in South Philly, in the local Indonesian community here, we know Achenese people who know we know what they're talking about. And that's created a significant bond between us. Donna's artwork would play an important role as well. Donna, I was reading that, you know, your experience in art kind of came into use in a very big way during the tsunami relief effort. Just in, um, like I created a coloring book. It was one of these fold out coloring pages that basically was meant to educate children as to what actually happened. I still got it. You know, it shows where the earthquake happened and the water rising and then, you know, everything, even showing houses being washed away and whatnot. And so they wanted something like that as an educational tool. And it could also be colored as kind of seems macabre, but <laughs> I did that. And then I also, one of our colleagues who ended up in our branch office up in Aceh was doing um, a lot of literacy work with teachers. They were having all these makeshift schools everywhere. And so she had the opportunity to basically train teachers on how to teach kids to read and write. And so I did a lot of these illustrations for her, for booklets and little cards, like a, an image for each sound, you know, things like that. So I, I did some of that kind of work, which was pretty neat. But I wasn't up there. I didn't go until a year afterwards. Yeah, that was a pretty amazing experience. To, like Lindy was saying, hearing all the stories and living in this little village. It was the first time I ever drank out of a tap because on that particular village compound, they had they were managing the filtration system. And the kids and Lindy would all bathe with the Indonesians in the river. The water buffalo were right there. And I just, <laughs> it grossed me out. But they had this like little makeshift shower, you know, just made out of nylon sheets and stuff. And, then, and I would go in there and I would be showering with perfectly clean water, looking up at the sky and the monkeys staring at me and stuff. Lindy and Donna grabbed those brief breaks from reality where they could, but the work was immense. And because they stuck around after others had left, they gained the trust of the community. Those connections really paid off when some less friendly faces appeared in town. We have Muslim Batak people wearing like the long Islamic robes that were very religious looking coming up from the city of Medan and trying to sweep out Westerners in this one town we were in. And, you know, we got targeted by them. And these people weren't from Aceh. And Aceh, you have to remember, is one of the most Islamically serious places in all of Indonesia. So it's a big, big deal. So we had these people come and kind of accost us, try to argue with us about things, assumed all kinds of religious things. And our Achenese friends, who, again, are generally thought to be kind of anti-foreigners, anti-Christian, they came up and they defended us to the hilt. And they said, nobody will do that with you because you're our friends. You've shown us that you care for us because you've been here. And, you know, I, I wept. I mean, it was astounding. This was just one of many reminders that the Bacchus family would never be insiders. 
and that vulnerability was hard to shake as Indonesia struggled to maintain stability. During their time there, the country had endured an economic crisis, a government meltdown and presidential resignation, and a catastrophic natural disaster. It had also been affected by political and religious fallout from the two Gulf Wars, 9-11 and the war in Afghanistan, and the Bali bombing of 2002. For me, in regard to the 18 years I was there, there were so many times as to when those vulnerabilities came up, when the ground forces start, went into Afghanistan, um, that really caused militant Muslim communities in the largest Muslim country in the world, Indonesia, to start looking for Westerners and try to sweep them out. And that scared us to death because, you know, we had a little blonde daughter who stuck out. We stuck out. And on top of all that, they faced constant uncertainty from opportunistic politicians who tried to use the Bacchus family's foreign status to their own advantage. And, um, you know, we were accused of swindling money from our organization by the local government, which wasn't true. We'd been audited. It's the opposite. It cost us our personal money sometimes. <laughs> we could prove that that wasn't the case. We were accused of proselytizing as Christians, even though most of our NGO was Muslim. And so they got offended that they were accused of proselytizing because they were Muslim. And I, every year we had to process a new visa. We couldn't go for permanent resident status because the government just wouldn't allow it. And so every year visas were an issue and we didn't know if we were going to get kicked out. So the vulnerability was really, really significant. They coped with the vulnerability by knowing that the community had their backs. Even when the Bali bomb happened, where, you know, like 202 people died, it was the second major terrorist attack that was of that size after 9-11. And that really rocked Indonesia. And um, there was real worries about what would happen with expatriates. And we were all living out in this city of 550,000 people. And I think we made up 15 or 16 out of 20 people that lived in the area that were not Indonesians. So we really stuck out. But our staff were concerned for us. And we had a big meeting. And they said, listen, on a good day, we're eight hours from the airport. The last thing we want you to do is to be in a car out in the middle of nobody driving when people might be against you. He said, we're going to keep our ears open and our eyes peeled in regard to what all is going on. But if anything has to happen, for the most part, we'll hide you. But if we got to even where we can't hide you, we will escort you together down to the airport. No one will touch you. It'll be us going down before you do. Wow. A neighbor said to me, he says, don't worry, we won't be silent. You know, we won't let anybody hurt you. That was comforting. So again, we weren't insiders, but we were belongers. We were owned by them. They'd gotten lucky that time. They hadn't had to use the escape plan they'd rehearsed. But then in 2007, the unthinkable happened. The Indonesian government accused the Bacchus family and much of their development team of violating their visas and threatened to kick them out. Lindy and Donna fought the accusations and have always maintained that their legal status was not in question. But despite their best efforts, they were handed deportation orders and given three days to leave the country. This was something their friends couldn't shield them from. For the country to kind of spit us out in three days was tough. That was the hardest time in our life, I think. It was devastating. Now, our local workers didn't want that to happen, but... You know, it was the local government that used this as kind of a, there was an election coming up and it was kind of heroic also to kick out the foreigners. The foreign infidels, they called us. But the thing that was hard for me also was I had started an art community arts program and I had a whole bunch of kids and it was really successful. And 
And then we disappeared and they kept asking our staff, where's, where's Ibudona? Oh. And, you know, and they just said, why isn't she coming back? And so the Bacchus family found themselves taking that long car ride to the airport that they had hoped to avoid. It was tough to be escorted by police guard down eight hours to the main airport with two suitcases and being kicked out and having to make a new life back here in the United States when we hadn't lived here for 18 years. The Bacchus family stayed in nearby Malaysia as they tried to find a way to stay in Indonesia legally. They were reluctant to tell their kids the full truth until they were sure. But after two months, it was clear. They'd be moving back to the States. Returning to the U.S. turned out to be almost as big an adjustment as moving to Indonesia had been. They'd already struggled over the years as they bounced back and forth during Lindy's academic pursuits. It was something his professor had warned him about way back in 1989. I had an anthropology professor say to me, if you go deep like I'm recommending you to do, and you really immerse, you'll never be an insider, but you can be a belonger. But you have to recognize you're always going to be kind of a peripheral person after this because it utterly changes you. It says you'll never really feel comfortable again, except for when you're on the plane. When you're leaving that which is confusing and going to that which you're romanticizing. And we would do that going both ways. So like when we were going to Indonesia, we couldn't wait to get back there. It was home. But after a while, it was tough because we weren't insiders. We were just belongers. We go back to the States. Man, we didn't belong anymore. People just didn't understand us anymore. And we had a really difficult time, not just with the politics, the culture and everything. The assumptions people would have, not just about us, but about Indonesians, about Muslims. It was tough. Ironically, when the Bacchus family returned to the States, they found a thriving Indonesian community that had sprung up while they were away. This was because of the economic crisis mentioned earlier. In 1997, a currency meltdown started in Thailand and rippled through Asia. It eventually affected much of Eastern Europe and Latin America as well. During this time, Indonesia's currency and financial markets collapsed, causing inflation to run wild. As Indonesians struggled to afford basic necessities, things spiraled into chaos as people searched for someone to blame. What started as protests soon became riots. Violent mobs targeted minority groups like the ethnically Chinese Indonesians, who were mostly Christian. Thousands were hurt or killed, and 100,000 people fled the country. 7,000 of them, mostly from the persecuted ethnically Chinese minority group, ended up in the U.S. under asylum protections and established permanent roots here. Today, Philadelphia has the second largest Indonesian community in America, with between six and 8,000 people. And the community is largely concentrated in the South Philly neighborhood the Bacchus family now calls home. When you moved back to the States, did you come straight to Philly? We were given a house through a friend to stay in for five months, right? It was a semester out in Springfield. It was weird. We were looking for homes out there. They'd already put the kids in school and they'd been there for just half a year and they liked their schools. But we'd always talked about how we would move to South Philly because we knew that this Indonesian community was growing. I remember waking up after we thought we were going to get a house. There was this one house. It was really nice. In Delaware County, in, in Springfield. And I just said to my husband, I said, Lenny, I, I couldn't sleep last night. I feel like we need to go to South Philly. And, and part of what happened was my son came home a few days before and said, Mom, I wish I was white. 
because he was the only white kid, you know. And, no, the only brown kid. Uh, brown kid, sorry. And uh, he, and I just, it broke my heart. You know, in Indonesia, he used to never say, he would always say, Mom, I wish you were brown, because he got tired of the attention I would bring every time we went anywhere. He'd go, Mom, I wish you were brown. That's just irritating. And so he called up our real estate agent and said, we're not going to move here. We're going to go to South Philly. And he's like, what? Okay. And we did. I was scared. He wasn't. I was scared of the suburbs. I thought it would rub off Indonesia. It would have. Yeah. And, it's, you know, there's no sidewalks. There's not a whole lot of walking. It's by invitation into the backyard only and all yeah. that. And I just. And the kids tried to get to them the neighbors and they didn't want anything to do with them. <laughs> yeah. The city just felt so much more. The Indonesian word is rame. It means like bustling. And it just felt more like Indonesia. And it's been a marvelous gift to come here to South Philadelphia. Mm. When 1992, because we'd already been in Indonesia two and a half years, we were looking for Indonesian food. There wasn't a single Indonesian anywhere in Philadelphia we could find for the year we lived here. Now this is kind of like called Kampung Philadelphia. Kampung means like village in Indonesia. It's the most active wow. Indonesian community in North America. And we yeah, have no huge. clue. I never knew this was all here. You know? It's kind of yeah. famous even in Indonesia because Voice of America is here all the time, you know, doing specials. Well, and when the ambassador to the United States from Indonesia changes down in D.C., he almost always comes up and visits South Philadelphia with the, the leaders here because it's such a crucial place. What are some examples where you've felt like the South Philly community has been very accepting and or has there been a lot of the opposite too? No, I haven't felt. No, I felt very accepted in South Philly. I, I think I wasn't very accepted among the women who were the mothers of my kids' friends at the little Italian school. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to get to know them. You know, I, I thought, okay, my kids are going to this little Catholic school around the corner. I remember I was really trying to kind of get in there and get to know everybody. A lot of the mothers were very active parents in the school. And I just found myself alone at everything. They just kind of didn't want to talk to me. And I remember going to someone's house to pick up my son and for the first time, one of the mothers let me in the house and, and chatted with me. And I thought, oh, I found a friend. But then when I saw her later at a school function, she was with a group of her friends and waved to me. And then I, I waved, kind of hoping that someone would let me in. And she walks over. She goes, oh, I'm with my friends. And I've known them all my life. So I'm going to go over there. But it's nice seeing you. <laughs> <laughs> and then I did get to know another mother who was not actually from the area. She was Italian, part Italian. She was from Philly, but she was more open-minded and not from there. But she still kind of fit in better than I did. And I said, well, why, why are they not friendly to me? And she goes, because you talk fancy. <laughs> I talk fancy, whatever that means. <laughs> Feeling out of place among white Americans, the Bacchus family sought refuge in the Indonesian immigrant community. But even there, they needed to adjust to some unexpected cultural differences. It's hard to fit in sometimes in some places, but I think the immigrant community just received us like crazy. The churches that are Indonesian down here, 
are for the most part Chinese. Um, you know, the Chinese diaspora that was in Southeast Asia and Indonesia that fled to here. So they're not brown skin kind of Indonesian Filipino looking people, but still their primary language for the most part, all of them is Indonesian. And Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world, but they're Christian. But the weird part about it was, is because we'd hung out so much in the mosque and so much with Muslims out in the middle. You know, we didn't go to church when we were out there. We hung out with local community. When we came back, we had to learn, especially religious language, because we knew Islamic religious language, but even the whole style and food and, you know, and all this kind of stuff. But there's an Indonesian mosque down here. We, when we would go to the mosque, we felt it was almost like a deep breath and sigh of relief and comfort would come over us. going home. (laughs) Because we would know how to act. We'd know how to eat. We'd know the language to you. So here we were, Western Christians, more comfortable at a mosque in South Philadelphia, right? So, you know, it's been a a kind of an interesting walk down here in South Philly, too, with the different Indonesian communities. Again, the vast majority of the Indonesians in South Philadelphia are Chinese Christian Indonesians that we now have learned how to assimilate into their culture. But it's not the people we hung out with when we were in Indonesia. Living in South Philly has allowed them to maintain their ties to Indonesian culture and also connect with other groups, both socially and professionally. We didn't want Indonesia to be rubbed out of us. And it hasn't been. No, we still speak the language. My work at CMAC, it's wonderful to be able to still be around them, but not just Indonesians. I've, I've learned so much about the Cambodians, the Vietnamese, the Chinese, the Burmese. Bhutanese. Even though my experience was nothing compared to theirs, I just love hearing their stories. And I don't think that a lot of Americans see people in the same way because they don't understand You know, like I see this elderly man come in. I'm like, there's a person with this whole life, you know, this whole adventure that is amazing that I don't know about yet. Our daughter during COVID started volunteering down at the testing sites. Well, you know, there's a lot of Indonesians here that needed to be tested. So she did a lot of translation and that just she really, really helped a lot. And now she's going into nursing and, you know, Part of it is that she wants to help the immigrant community. And our son, because he came back, he was eight, and he got involved in Italian communities and their schools. There was a part of him that didn't want to kind of embrace his Indonesian identity. But now he does. He's got a tattoo of the Indonesian islands on his arm. He's in a bicycle club that is all people of color. And so he's become much more embracing of who he is. And I think that's a gift to the city. He's seen that this is our tribe, you know, and it's a lot of it has to do with issues of social justice. And again, it kind of goes full circle. You know, it's back to when we went to Indonesia. We're going to fight for the poor, work alongside the poor, listen to the poor, be humble and learn from them. And I think our kids have embraced much of that. Of course, Donna's work very much coincides with that as well, her work at CMAC. And I teach that kind of stuff at the university level. been a long journey for Lindy and Donna, literally and figuratively. They've had to start over, not once, but twice. They've had amazing adventures, they've faced hardship and isolation, but they've also made lifelong connections, and they've spent their careers doing work they can feel proud of. 
but with all the rich experiences they can pull from, it's the memories of their kids growing up that stick with them most vividly. When Dika, uh, he was learning how to fly kites and he was just desperate to know and he had to pay the older kids money for them to teach him. And it's like a penny, you know. He would come in, he goes, mom, mom, I need a coin, I need a coin. So I'd give him a coin and he'd run out and give it to one of the older boys and then they would give him a lesson and because they could buy a kite. These are these little bamboo paper kites that different people would make tons of them and sell them to all the children during the windy season. And, uh, you know, he was really frustrated, but he finally caught on. He was getting really good. Well, the strings would have glass. Fiberglass some little pieces of Fiberglass. Yeah. And so they would battle each other. And eventually one of them would cut the other string. It'd go flying off. And then that person would win. And then the goal was to mm-hmm. run after the kite. They're always running it. through my garden, climbing over everything, trying to get to the... You'd be sitting there talking in your in your yard. And all of a sudden you'd hear the stampede kind of sound. And here come these kids jumping over your fence and whatever going after a kite. And so he was learning it. And then one day there was this trail of kids. And he's coming down. He's got a giant kite like a huge one bigger than him and all the kids were so proud of him and they were all it was just like this march down through this little alleyway that went to our house and there he stood proudly and everybody was there looking at us like he's made it <laughs> you know that was just and then my daughters the the funniest thing i still remember it is when we first moved down to tasik malaya the house we were renting was terrible and it needed a lot of fixing so um we moved in for a month to this elderly person's house. And I woke up and Aubrey wasn't there. And I woke up Lindy. I said, where's Aubrey? Because I don't know. She'd gotten up. And at that point she was four and she just walked out in her pajamas. So we're not really panicking because we know, I mean, our kids have been pretty safe, you know, because it's very crowded. Everybody knows everybody. So we were like, do you know where our daughter is? Where is she? Where is she? And they're like, oh, she went oh, that way. She went that way. And then around the corner, I see her and she's walking down this alleyway with a whole bunch of kids, little, little kids behind her following her. And she's got this chicken that <laughs> she's holding and walking. It's pooping everywhere because it's scared. There's all over Poopless. her and she's just like, <laughs> she's like, oh my gosh. And it was squawking and all these kids were just following, watching this weird white girl pick up a chicken. That's how comfortable she was in that neighborhood. Our kids loved it there. It was a great place to grow up. We wouldn't trade it for anything. And both of them grew up there, right? We didn't take them there. I mean, our daughter was two months old. I remember talking to Aubrey and I said to Aubrey, I think we're going to be moving to the States. And she goes, dad, it's just so big. I don't think I can live there. I just don't know it. Here's this little girl who had been born here in the States, but it wasn't home. And I don't know how much it even still is. My daughter has said, Aubrey that lived in Indonesia, sometimes, Dad, I feel like she's dead. Because I had to become a new Aubrey here. But that old Aubrey's still there a lot of ways. And I think the same thing with our son. Yeah, she's different. Yeah, in a good way. The weird part about it was, is the three white people in our family probably have a deeper experience of Indonesia than the little brown guy who was eight years old. I mean, we speak Indonesian better than him. We do. <laughs> but it's kind of a gift because, I mean, he kind of walks around and he's our icon of how much we love the place because we love him. But he also can look at us and say, hey, you know, I'm not just an adopted guy. They adopted the country long before they adopted me. And in fact, the country adopted them. So like, you know, 
Indonesia's kind of painted over our entire family. Today's episode of Culture Jumpers was hosted by Lionel Nicolau and me, Alana Weitz. We're produced and edited by myself and Lionel Nicolau. Music and sound design was also done by myself and Lionel Nicolau. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favorite app, and please consider leaving a review if you like what you hear. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We were actually in a movie our second year oh, yeah. over there. Yeah, an Indonesian really? movie. Yeah. They came knocking on our door at night and said, hey, we need white people, extras. <laughs> it was a movie about Dutch colonial kind of occupation and the interaction with the Dutch. And, and we looked Dutch enough. They weren't very long scenes. It was like a scene around a big table. And even in the, the magazines, it showed a picture of me and Lindy in the scene. So we're like telling everybody. So all of our Indonesian friends are so excited to see this movie and we watch it and we were cut out. Oh, no. (laughs) We ended up on the cutting room floor. The only proof we had was the magazine pictures that we were actually (laughs) in it.